Greetings, everyone. This is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Chointcast, interviews and short stories from across the world that connect us with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. In episode 23, we meet Dan Pontefract. Dan is the founder and CEO of the Pontefract Group, a firm that improves the state of leadership and organizational culture. Dan has presented at four different TED events and also writes for Forbes, Harvard Business Review, and the Huffington Post. Dan is an adjunct professor at the University of Victoria Gustafsson School of Business and has garnered more than 20 industry awards over his career. Dan previously served as Chief Envisioner and Chief Learning Officer at TELUS, a Canadian telecommunications company with revenues of $14 billion and 50,000 global employees where he launched the Transformation Office, the TELUS MBA, and the TELUS Leadership Philosophy, all award-winning initiatives that dramatically helped to increase the company's employee engagement to record levels of nearly 90%. Welcome, everyone, to the Chointcast. Today we have Dan Pontefract, and he's the founder and CEO of the Pontefract Group and, more importantly, the author of Open to Think. Welcome, Dan. Sir James, what a pleasure to be here hanging out with you today. You're one of those rare breeds that put yourself out there and give back to society. I love it. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Dan, before we get going, it, let's let's learn a little bit more about you. Speaking of goodness and causes, what are some of your favorites? Well, uh, I'm Canadian, and uh, don't hold that against your uh, northern neighbor, but uh, we have uh, one of our wildly successful bands uh, in Canada, a rock band called the Tragically Hip, and they were with us from 1987 on, and its lead singer passed away from a terminal brain cancer uh, a year and a half ago, Gord Downey. And so having known uh, Gord and the family and the band for a while, uh, two causes come to mind. Um, one is when we can support anything to do with cancer research, uh, cancer development, whether it's glioblastoma, multiform, or any type of cancer, gosh, that, uh, that, that triggers my heart. And then the second thing, what uh, Gord and his family did was raise awareness in our country to a bit of a historical, diabolical uh, legacy, which is what we call the residential schools uh, scandal. And we, we sort of plucked First Nation children and put them in residential schools and said that's they're going to sort of learn to be white. And so uh, Gord and the team created awareness around um, this and they created a foundation. And so, again, up in our neck of the woods, uh, trying to help that cause wherever I can. That sounds great. I'm going to have to follow that story and the music for uh, the Tragically Hip. Uh, thanks for sharing that. How do we find you online, Dan? Well, I wish I was as good as you in thinking about Choink as a as a brand name, which is unique in its first syllable, eight words or eight letters. But uh, I'm uh, I'm Dan. I wish I was Dan. I wish I was Lady Gaga. You could just put that in, or Madonna, right, or Choink. <laughs> so, so you know the usual suspect places, right? Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. I even started Instagram a couple years ago to keep keep up with our goats, the uh, the fourteen, twelve, and ten year olds. Um, and, and my name, funny enough, means um, the opposite of what I'm doing. My last name is Pontifrac, but in Latin, that means broken bridge. And what I'm trying to do is build bridges, Jim. So, you know, I guess Google me or what have you, but most likely you can find me at danpontifrac.com. 
and I'll keep that long E in mind. Let's turn to your book then. Again, for everyone, the book we're going to be talking about is a wonderful book, a fantastic book called Open to Think, which was all written in lowercase. Now, your book is subtitled Slow Down, Think Creatively, and Make Better Decisions. So that, of course, triggered whether or not you're a, a Dan Kahneman, i.e. a thinking fast and slow advocate. Oh, I mean, between Kahneman and, uh, you know, his his longtime partner who also passed away, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, uh, those two worked on all sorts of cool theories of which two come to mind in the book. And I think we are just living in the vortex of Csikszentmihalyi and Kahneman. And that is uh, flow, the theory of flow, and then the other is prospect theory. So if people are unfamiliar with, you know, basically those, prospect theory is this notion where we will, when, when there's sort of, when we're able to choose amongst alternatives, we'll, we'll avoid the loss uh, and optimize for the sure win because the pain of losing is greater ultimately than the satisfaction of an equivalent gain, which is a way to say in translation, you know, we're jumping quickly to this win rather than or or just ignoring the loss so to say rather than thinking through something that might make more sense on on flow of course right that is uh and which is really the premise of that book you alluded to it's about how do we and, and i use this term in in my book but how do we marinate in the moment such that we enter into a state of thinking that becomes almost uh, ethereal, almost surreal, a way in which that, you know, you can't knock us out or knock us down because we're so deep and entrenched of the learning and the possibility and the curation of opportunity that we wake up and we're like, oh, wow, did I just spend two or three hours in flow, in thinking, in in ideation? And And to me, you know, we're just paying, I'm paying homage to those two with kind of those two theories in a way of repatriating our thinking space. It's a wonderful approach, and I really appreciate the the deep references you just shared. It probably also explains, Dan, your quote on page 23, which is lovely. I think I had it as a pull-out quote on the review. We are a culture of people who've bought into the idea that if we stay busy enough, the truth of our lives won't catch up with us. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. What experiences led you to that observation, Dan? <laughs> well, uh, I have turned 47, and thus I, I spent the last 25 years uh, in organizations, uh, public sector as well as for-profit. And whether I was director of academics in the post-secondary world, or I was a chief learning officer, or even a made-up word like a chief envisioner. My my 25-year professional pedigree has been working with team members, mid-management, and executives, both in the organizations in which I served, and uh, funny enough, other organizations when I got to hang out and help them become better people, better orgs. And a quarter decade, uh, or I guess a quarter century, I should say, later, 
what what I the pattern I've picked up on is that there's this busyness badge of honor that has somehow grown to be the thing and and that somewhere along the way rather than benevolence or altruism or community or engagement or that of the employees or you know customer satisfaction it just seems to be that when we're busy we feel important and and then we wake up and we're like oh was was it worth it so funny enough um and i'm not trying to plug anything here but to be honest but it was a story that I reread when I reread my own second book called The Purpose Effect that got me triggered on, oh yeah, that's exactly what's happening. So let me just briefly share this story. So gentleman in New Zealand, his name's Linz Redding, and he's been in marketing for 30 years. And he's an executive and he's worked you know, on his own. He's worked for some big firms. Um, and, and he had this thing called the overnight test where they'd be working with the client on this pitch and they'd say, well, look, we want you to think about this overnight and, and, and give us your thoughts. And invariably the client would never wait overnight. It would be just this expedited, no, we want this now, do this now. And so, you know, the marketing firm would go and do it. Now, uh, Linz, um, got terminal cancer and he wrote this unique, touching, heartfelt, enduring, painful blog post. And I got wind of it. And the blog post basically says, you know, he's talking about this overnight test. And he gets to the point in the blog post, he says, was it worth it? All those birthday parties missed, the 18-hour days, the back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings. For what? what? Why did I do all that? And And he said, I guess my life didn't pass the overnight test. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and and I just teared up, right? And, and so I had to kind of include the story in that particular book because it's a book about purpose. But but then when after I finished writing that book, I was like, why is there why is culture so bad in our orgs? Why is everyone walking around apocalyptically like a zombie, staring at their phones and going from meeting to meeting to meeting like Lynn's was? And then, you know, thinking about my own reflections and who am I and I'm raising three kids with Denise and what's going on in society. Like there were all these pieces that started to come together and I felt compelled to write about uh, our lack of thinking, our distracted thinking, our very short and truncated thinking. And that quote, you know, the culture of people who bought into the idea, if we, biz- if we stay busy enough, our lives aren't going to catch up with us. Well, it will. And so my my yearning for society is to not be like Linz. Well, and he had quite a testimonial to, to warn us mm-hmm. when he put his, he said his life didn't pass the test. Wow. That's, um, that's a shocking thing to share. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears then. And I really appreciate that. By the way, I, I, I will have to get, uh, the, the purpose effect. Um, just, just the title alone, certainly since we know each other, but back to open, um, open to think. You have this terrific two-dimensional graphic on page 18. It's got action on one axis and reflection on the other, creating four boxes. Can you walk us through that diagram? Because that, I think, will 
set us up for what the real definition of open thinking is. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose, you know, the, the story goes, the tongue in cheek story is if, if you're going to write a book and it's a leadership management sort of self-help book, you either got to have a Venn diagram or a two by two matrix these days. So here's my, <laughs> here's my two by two matrix. <laughs> So, so kids that are listening in, uh, on the Y axes up there, right, is reflection and down on the bottom, right, the X axes is action. And those are the two words that, that we need to be conscious of. Now on the bottom kind of the, the X axis, sorry, action, we're really good at that. So we know how to execute. We're very good at it. In fact, we have, we get gold medals in our action. It's fantastic. But it's the reflection part on the y-axis that I think we need a little bit of help with. So if you kind of think about it in four boxes, the two by two matrix, on the bottom left, if there's sort of no or little action and there's no or little reflection, you have become indifferent. And you might analogously think of this as those that are the either somewhere between disenfranchised and disengaged in our organizations. They just don't care. They wear a tattoo that says apathy on their forehead, right? So those frighten me, but potentially not as much as the other two boxes on the top left and the bottom right, because how, how, how much are you really going to change an indifferent person? And I reckon our organizations have about 10% of those anyway. So let's look at the other two boxes and we'll talk about open thinking. So on the top left, reflection, so, or sorry, indecisive, you have, you spend way too much time actually dreaming. And although I'm asking people to dream more and reflect more, it actually can come at a consequence. Meaning if you're a fence sitter, if you're like what Dr. Ansoff referred to uh, long ago, the paralysis by analysis conundrum. So if you're kind of overthinking or over pausing and, and just you know, wait, there's just, there's too much of you in dreamland. Well, that's equally inefficient and that's an indecisive individual. So that's the top left on the bottom, right. Sort of the third box we'll describe. This is, this is the, the real issue these days. And that is the action only superhero syndrome of, of the organization. And these are the peripatetic, uh, ghost walkers, zombie-like, staring at a phone, going from one meeting room to the next, one call to the next, you know, and and they're thus inflexible. And I call it inflexible because they will not get up from the reality that they are just overly stressed, busy, and distracted for the next dopamine hit of an action or a red little doohickey on their phone and what have you, right? That's the crisis. And I think we're at both. It reminds me of uh, Super Tramp's song, Child of Vision, <laughs> where it says you, you watch the television because it tells you that you should. <laughs> I don't know why that I don't know why that popped up. <laughs> that was so good. Well, we, uh, <laughs> we both know how old we are with our uh, Super Tramp reference. It's beautiful, though. I get it. That's totally appropriate. Um, Yes, that's it. Exactly. So, so the inflexible thinker is one who just, you know, refuses to ref reflect. The inflexible thinker is just addicted to action. 
And I, I think it's about 50% of the org, based on my rudimentary analyses. So you got, you know, up there in the top left, somewhere between 20 to 30% are indecisive. You got your bottom feeders, uh, the indifferent on the bottom left, they're about 10%. And you got about 50% of the org on the bottom right that are inflexible and they're just addicted to action. And again, I only think in the top right, which is obviously the good balance between reflection and action, is the open thinker. That's the individual who balances their thinking through three types of different thinking. And um, probably a good segue to go into what exactly am I trying to do and what am I suggesting in the book? It's nothing new, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't like I haven't invented Wonder Bread again, right, and called it whatever, super wonderful bread. This is just saying, look, open thinkers know how to balance not just the reflection and the action, but three types of thinking that I was taught in grade four. It's, can you be a creative thinker? Can you be a critical thinker? And then can you apply it? Thus, are you an applied thinker? And what we've lost most out on is this notion of creative and critical thinking. Tell us about Tyler Schultz and critical oh, thinking, because that one... I, I was just so darn happy to see someone writing about that. <laughs> Isn't it funny though, if people are unfamiliar with Tyler, he's um he's a he's a nephew um of uh oh he's a grandson, sorry, right, of George Schultz. He was uh Nixon and and in Nixon and Reagan's administrations as he was Secretary of State for one and um he was treasury, I think, and labor secretary for the other. Anyway, so so this kid, you know, grandson of of George is Tyler, and he works for Thranos. And for those that are unfamiliar with that particular story, right, it was um, a situation in which, which he's in a lot of trouble these days with and probably going to end up in jail, um, is the old... Uh, the story around Elizabeth Holmes, who kind of was in at Stanford and said, hey, I can I can find a neat way in which to prick people's fingers with blood in this sort of fake medical device that she had contracted or con conceptualized, sorry. And and it'll determine whether you have an issue, a, a medical issue. And in real time, you can then get drugs administered and so on. It was just insane. Anyway, it was all bollocks. It was absolutely hogwash and balderdash, right? And so this kid, Tyler, who's working at the company, um, calls out to Holmes the situation. And she got, or he got ignored. And so he basically said, all right, enough's enough. Like my ethics which is about good critical decision-making is what I'm getting at here. You need to have ethics. Uh, he called out the situation and ended up calling, you know, the Wall Street Journal and, and was a whistleblower on this travesty of thinking because Holmes and the executives and even the board, I would argue, their culpability, I think, is, is indeed uh, an indictment on what, what their applied thinking was, i.e. just doing action and not really reflecting. So Schultz, the younger one, said, no, like, no, this is wrong. This is unethical. And so henceforth, what came and still to this day is about nine indictments. And I'm pretty sure Holmes is going to land herself 25 years in jail for really just rushing to judgment and, and not thinking this through. And so good on Tyler. 
Oh, it's a wonderful story. And again, uh, what, a, what a great example of critical thinking. Give us an example of um, creative thinking or how we can open ourselves to do that. Well, the tactical uh, action item I want people to consider is, is a real simple line, repatriate your time. And so, you know, a, a lesser word, uh, sort of more layman's term is win back your time. And what does that mean? Well, I find that when I do calendar audits and I'm working with execs and teams and individual contributors, again, back to the peripatetic kind of overly calendared world that we live in, you first have to block out time, which sounds ironic, but just bear with me. You got to block out time to be creative, to dream. And that may mean that you're allowing yourself to read something. That may mean that you're allowing yourself to go for a walk, you know, uh, some sort of athletic pursuit, uh, fitness, wellness. Maybe you, maybe you can go through a garden. Maybe you can go to the art gallery. Like there, there needs to be a way for us to decompress so that we allow our thoughts to basically meander and creative thinking needs time when we are always doing so the the report writing the engineering the marketing the meetings the you know the the processing power of our brain uh is is really only good at doing one thing at a time we kid ourselves if we can multitask so how can we do that well i argue that we just win back time by by of the 168 hours we each have in a week, how are you allocating time to nothing, <laughs> right? <laughs> and when I, say, when I say nothing, I mean, well, not the work doing. And it could be during work hours, it could be after work hours, it should be both, arguably. And I'll give you an example of what I've done since, uh, this dates myself, but since 1998. I will not take a meeting Friday afternoons. I will not take a meeting Friday afternoons and I have not done so in 20 plus years because for the four hours from, uh, and I might take a lunch with someone, right? But from the four hour or from the 20 hours of cheese, from the 20 years or so on Friday afternoons for those four hours from one to five, nothing. And that allows me the time to go for a bike ride or I might, uh, be on a plane coming back from somewhere, but I'm not taking a meeting. I might be in my home office. I might be on site somewhere. I'm still not taking a meeting because that's my processing time. It's partly creative thinking, but it's also actually, Jim, partly critical thinking because I can then put together the dots, connect the pieces and say, well, what's this puzzle mean? And how might I make better decisions or think up new ideas to then get into some action next week, the next month, the next year. We all need to repatriate and win back our time, first and foremost. I really like the way that you created, uh, you connected the creative with the, the critical, that that's possible actually when you reclaim your time or, or slow down. It's, um, it's a wonderful idea. Interestingly, it, it's, worth, it's worth sharing just for fun yeah. that I've had similar observations and actually created an energy management workshop oh to audit and 
and actually look at what you're doing throughout the day based on your relative energy levels and by the end of the workshop coming up with a superior one which includes good activities when the energy levels are lower so that it's it's more managing the those energy thresholds and most of the people who've gone through that find a huge productivity boost and they're a lot happier Oh, isn't that so cool? Good on you. I mean, I'm such a big fan of biorhythms, like knowing when you are at your peak for the creative, the critical, the applied thinking. So and as an example, like those Friday afternoons, I know that I have conditioned myself or I perhaps have just you know muscled my way into knowing that those are good times for me to make decisions about the next week and next month. Like that's just what I've condition myself to but I also like I, there's other things that I do in life obviously so I found that I'm a much better writer at um, at seven o'clock to nine o'clock in the morning but also nine o'clock to eleven o'clock at night so I don't I don't ever really write anything if it's for a book or an article or whatever uh, kind of during the day and so I'm a huge fan of you know knowing when you're good energy level wise so that it can help you with you know those three key stages of thinking so good on you i'm right with you i'm reviewing uh daniel goleman's classic emotional intelligence right now it's a pretty it's a pretty heavy book you cited his 2013 work focus the hidden driver of excellence and can you share with us the four key attributes that comprise executive functions yeah, I mean, um, I am with Denise uh, living in in a bit of hell right now. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is because we've got these brooding teenagers that, if people are familiar with teenagers, basically have zero prefrontal cortex right now. Like, it's just, it is under development or under construction as you might kind of joke about and so it, what what the prefrontal cortex gives and sort of those that are familiar with the brain is our executive functions and executive functions really come down to kind of you know, like three basic things right there's your ability to recall so that you have you know some some memory uh, there's the ability to have sort of focus and attention. So, you know, you're kind of in the moment. Uh, and there's inhibition, meaning you're, you're able to not say the wrong thing. So you can basically, it's foot and mouth syndrome, right? And so what, what I found is that, well, that's actually happening to adults in the work world <laughs> where... We're sort of now developing uh, a new lost lobe and the prefrontal cortex seems to be dissipating and, and you know, shrinking. And so those kind of three key elements are, are in need of some support. And so what I argue in the book is that, well, to be better at the doing because we're losing those executive functions, maybe we need execution functions. <laughs> and so playing off a bit of Goleman and others obviously that have uh, studied um, executive functions, execution functions basically are a way for us to, to tap into kind of a performance improvement as we're taking action. And I've, I've got four, and and again, it's a curation of 
of my experience and research from the past you know, 100 years, including Goldman. So the first is be mindful. And when we're mindful, what we're op- 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 opening ourselves up to is that, okay, there are, there are relevant, relevant sorry, means to an end here. We have to stay relevant, but we've got to remain kind of, um, I guess you'd say, on task to completing it. So mindful is essentially remembering that we've got something to do and how do we make sure that we still do it. So not getting distracted in ends. And then the next one would be being attentive. So when you're attentive, you're focused so that you're not allowing the emails and the buzzes on your phone from text and that WhatsApp soundbite that you use that you downloaded from the app store, like all of that kind of stuff that's kind of getting in the way. So you're focused on the actions, but you still remain flexible because you may have to go back to creative or critical thinking because it's not quite working. So you're not dogged or pigheaded. The third is sort of being ruthless. This is how, when I see people uh, multitasking when they're trying to do something, like you ever see the meme, the conference call bingo uh, sheet, right? Where you've got all these funny little quips like, you know, uh, hammering on a keyboard in the background or uh, sorry I'm late or, you know, oh, the call ran over. Like when we're not ruthless with our calendar and able to block out other things and pretend that we are good multitaskers and sort of stop that thinking, then then we're we're not. So be ruthless. And then the last one really come down comes down, sorry, to being empathetic. When when leaders and or you as an individual are empathic or empathetic to those that you're serving during the action. You'll then put yourself in the shoes of someone else and you're being humane. There's a humanity about your doing because yes, you gotta get stuff, so you gotta be mindful, attentive, and ruthless, ruthless to your own calendar, that is. But when you're, when you're inhumane, you, know, you make that action doing so much less humane that what, what ends up happening is it's a bad effort it's probably a disengaged individual or teams that are doing it, and you're gonna feel pretty horrible at the end of the day too. So in summary, and thanks Jim, that's a great question, execution functions comes down to you being mindful, attentive, ruthless, and humane, and I argue then that will help your executive functions of kind of being able to pay attention and focus to having recall and memory, and then not putting your foot in your mouth. So. Two more, two more questions, Dan, and I've I've got to fit this one in. You highlight the Chuck Nolan character from the film Castaway. Oh yeah, famously played by Tom Hanks. So why did you why did you choose to highlight Chuck? Well, if people are unfamiliar with the the Castaway story, um, it's it's. It's fictional, and it was uh, devised by Robert Zemeckis, a great, great director and writer. And and he worked with his buddy Tom Hanks, who plays this character, uh, Chuck Nolan. And Chuck Nolan is a FedEx systems analyst. And at the beginning of the movie, you can see how incredibly stressed and frenetic and diabolically fixated on action that this character is because his job 
is to go to different sites and to make sure that FedEx, uh, like I guess sites, are are working better, quicker, faster, more efficient. Now, I don't I don't knock FedEx or anyone that's in that business. It's that it's a character setup. So, okay, so here's this, and he's overweight, and he's and he talks really really fast, and it's quite incredible. So. He's got to go somewhere on Christmas Eve, and unfortunately, there's a storm in the in the plane shoots down to the gra- ground, and he's on an island by himself. And he he learns to befriend this volleyball called Wilson. Now, the interesting thing about this movie is that it's basically a two part movie. There's this stress frenetic guy who not only got blown out of the sky in a storm, and the only guy surviving on the plane, he's got to live on an island by himself. But when he when he enters the island, he is the same guy that was 24 hours ago, right? This stressed dude. And, and you can see that he's, he's, he's just quickly trying to get off the island. So he's quickly trying to make fire, and he's quickly trying to get off the island. And, and each time he tries to do things, he's hurting himself. Like he's literally bleeding out. Um, and then it's almost as if he's hopeless. He's like, I'm ne- I, what? And it's because, in my opinion, he's he's thinking really fast, without doing the good creative and critical thinking. So he's just doing. Now, four years later, as the subtitle goes in the movie, and you see Tom Hanks and the character Chuck Nolan, he's he's like somewhere between now a Yoda, a Gandalf, and an elite athlete. <laughs> and, <laughs> I like that. And he's. You could, he's just, he's this quintessential open thinker now. And why? Well, one of the stories I, I include in the book is well, this Johnny on the spot porta potty door washes up on the island. And he gets his buddy Wilson and he stares at this door for what seems like hours because it's just this pregnant pause of minutes in the film. If you paid your 12 bucks, you'd be angry. You're like, are they ever going to talk? What's happening? And so he, my point is he eventually says this could work like to his Wilson buddy. And what he's going through is creative and critical thinking. He's like, could this, could this, could this? And he's like, it could. And then he spends an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how to use that as a sail for a raft and then he has to spend an inordinate amount of time figuring out how to stalk it and to beat the big waves that are preventing him from escaping the island. And he end, ends up doing it. So here's the ultimate point. So, Jim, that Tom Hanks character, Chuck Nolan, that entered the island uh, would have, in my opinion, uh, if the door had shown up in the first half of the movie, would have cut it up into, like, frisbees or plates, right? And said, you know, just so frenetic like oh i need i need plates as opposed to you know thinking about it as a sale and whereas in the second half of the movie here's a great thinker pausing ruminating marinating in the moment wondering and then saying it could work knowing that he may come back he didn't say this will work he says this could work and what we are analogously in society, in our organizations, is we're far too many of the Chuck Nolans that showed up on the island, and we need to become more like the Chuck Nolan that left the island. Perfect. I like the way you pulled out together too. I, I knew you were going to do that. So our last, <laughs> our our last um, observation and question 
Dan. Early and open to think, you mentioned the importance of feedback, and that really is a, is a big trigger to me because when we help people develop a personal leadership philosophy, asking for feedback is, we believe, is truly you know, the hallmark of a good leader. Why is feedback to you um, important for a leader? Gosh, I mean, if, if you really want to be an open thinker, uh, it, it starts with the word open. You've got to open your mind, your heart, your head, your soul to the constructive and positive feedback that sits out there such that you end up making better feedback or making better decisions and better actions based on the feedback. And so if if you're a closed thinker, that means, in my opinion, that you're not open to that type of feedback. But that's how we make that's where better ideas come from the next time. That's where better decisions are made the next time. That's how we can expedite and become more efficient in our applied thinking actions the next time. If we're not doing as the military does after action reviews, which is really a chance to go back and ask for feedback on how did we do in this particular uh, approach or this operation. When we don't do AARs uh, inside of our own selves to go back and say, hey, how did I do? Or before you take action, saying, hey, what do you think about this? Do you have any feedback before we proceed? Maybe curating other ideas or even potential modes of, of, of interaction that get us to a decision. Like that's equally important. So for me, it's, it's kind of like the selfless leader is an open thinker. And a selfless leader, leader of self, leader of people, all the above, is one who is unabashedly, courageously able to both proactively and reactively ask for feedback in order to better their selves. What a wonderful answer. So we're done really going through Open to Think, Dan. Tell us, looking ahead a bit, what are you working on now? What would you like to share with the audience that's coming next? Oh, I'm always thinking of things. So the the biggest project that I've to date, I think, decided to delve into, and even though I've I've kind of written these three books, I am I am so excited for this book because arguably I probably should have written it first, but I'm so glad I'm writing it fourth. And and it's as follows. Um we have we have gotten to a, a place in our society where where we've we've kind of lost the plot on what it really means to be humane in the organization, and it's it's this sort of inhumane approach that I'm I'm desperately trying to help people see and to eradicate or mitigate. Like the the inconsiderate leader, whom exists in today's organization, not not all, but definitely um, that's that's there. It's, it needs to be broken back down by the more compassionate leader. And so the project that I'm working on is called Love-Based Leadership. And a love-based leader is, is one who does not overlook or shun or forget about that most important word. And I'm not talking about an amorous 
um, spousal type of a relationship or next of kin or familial, right? I'm talking about agape. Exactly. Exactly. So my quest is to research, curate, understand, discover, and then eventually write this book that I hope is an antidote for those inconsiderate, inhumane organizations and leaders. Certainly looking forward to that. And uh, everyone in the audience should as well. Well, thank you, Dan. This is a very energizing, enlightening joint cast. And the fun part for me is it's happening at the beginning of Friday afternoon. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you, Dan. And um, certainly want to stay in touch with you. Um, again, this was a wonderful joint cast, everybody. Dan Pontefract, and he's the author of Open to Think. Thank you, Jim. Much appreciated. Keep doing what you're doing. Love it. Thank you for listening today. If you've enjoyed the Joincast, a positive iTunes review and kind word to your friends and colleagues would be most appreciated. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, hashtag Choink, C-H-O-I-N-Q-U-E. Visit the bookshelf at www.choink.com. Want to enroll in a Leadership Excellence course? Visit my homepage at www.academyleadership.com. Stay energized.